Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. The expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks, and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Bryce. It's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Obers, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts. died in the late 90s. That's the story we hear over and over again, and as untrue as it is, it is especially untrue in Latino communities in the U.S., particularly in the Los Angeles area. Since the 90s, the DIY ska scene has only grown in these neighborhoods, and it has blossomed into exciting several thousand person outdoor festivals like Ska Wars and Ska Corps Invasion. Our guest today on In Defense of Ska is Clemente Ruiz, one of the primary bookers of this scene, who stumbled upon being the go-to booker for the same reason that many other people get into booking punk shows. If he didn't do it, no one else would. Clemente also plays drums in the ska punk band La Resistencia, and he works behind the scenes for several prominent musicians, including Travis Barker, The Deftones, and Pepe Aguilar. I think one of the most exciting things about the current state of ska punk, or at least the current how I perceive ska punk, is that it's a more of an international thing. Where before, during the third wave, I feel like it was very insular. I feel like there wasn't a lot of crossover between scenes. And now I feel like there's more of an emphasis on uh, an international crowd. Yeah, and I think that what's happened is that the international element of ska has totally grown and become just a normal genre alongside everything else. And the U.S. is really slow to catch up on that. I feel like the, the U.S. is slow just to appreciate music in general from the from the sound of this. I mean, it sounds like the shows down in, in Mexico and, and uh, in Latin America are, are way better across the board, not even dependent on the on the genre ska is really popular there but also metal is really popular there metal continues to be a genre that draws you know tens of thousands of people there whereas in the u.s that's become a, a niche genre as well just like ska so it's interesting to see that outside of the u.s lens there is real audiences for these music that are just kind of considered dead at this point so we interviewed Clemente Ruiz. Um, my history with him is 
first time I got to know him was back in 2015 when I was writing about the Latino ska scene in LA for Playboy. And I heard about him and that scene from Eddie from Voodoo Gloskos. He told me about it. He told me about it when you and I were together with him at the 94 Gilman show. Do you remember that? Yeah. That's when he told me, he's like, you got to check out what's going on in LA. What's happened is that, you know, since ska has quote unquote died in the US, it has continued on in LA in these Latino communities and it has only gotten bigger and it is almost like the separate scene. It is a better scene than anywhere else in this country for sure. So my first experience with your scene was in 2015, I think, when I went down to Ska Wars for Playboy. And I like to talk about this show a lot because it was so amazing to me that in 2015, there was this DIY festival at a park with, I think, what, 3,000 people sold out? Yeah, like 2,500. Yeah. And it was the most fun ska show I had seen in a really long time. And I think the thing about it was that there was a lot of young people there who were super into it and they knew the words. It was almost entirely local bands and they were into it. And I just couldn't believe that kind of energy for just like ska, local ska, new bands, like new ska and stuff like that. It was just really, really impressive to me. And and also to see that the festival itself was not remotely corporate. It was, it was just put on by you guys. There was a couple people selling shirts and stuff like that and not, nothing, no sponsors or, or anything like that, that I could see. Yeah. Um, so by that point, Scott Wars had been a thing for a little while, right? Yeah. The first one we did was an indoor festival type at the knitting factory before it closed, like back in 08, maybe. Mm-hmm. And um, that's kind of where it started because the knitting factory gave us access to three different stages at the same time. And what happened was that, um, I mean, this was already eight years into me being involved with organizing shows. And oh, but let's wait before we before we get into that. Let's start by could you list some of the bands that have played your events? Um, pe- bands both from the U.S. and Mexico that are well known. So as far as so I'll go into like the different. How do I how do I explain this? There's like different, like these bands come from like different worlds. I guess you can say. For example, the bands coming from Latin America or Mexico are bands like Sectacor, Nana Pancha. Los Abajo, uh, Panteón Rococó, um, Salón Victoria. Um, those are just a few to name of like bands that have done work. We've worked shows with, but at the same time, they influenced us to do what we do or, you know what I mean? Or they influenced us at a, at a younger age. And they, like, these are bands that have been playing since like the, they started like in the early mid nineties and they were, they do amazing in Mexico. It was huge out there. And those are the bands that are from out there from these, from the States. Um, you know, we've had bands like Voodoo, Mustard Plug, um, you know, just, um, the Mad Caddies. Um, and we've had band members of other bands show up to our shows just to observe, but not perform, which is crazy, you know? And I think like people might not realize that 
in Mexico, bands like Panteón, Rococo, and Inspector, these bands are huge. I mean, not huge for ska, just huge in general. Yeah, ska isn't like an underground thing. Ska isn't ska in Mexico. Ska, yeah, ska is considered more of like a, main, a mainstream genre in Mexico where they're playing like for 25, 30,000 people at an arena. Like just just like three ska bands, you know? And, and a lot of people don't a lot of bands in the u.s don't know about that and don't see it but us like a, a lot of us that grew up in la who are who are um who are like mexican-american we see both worlds i grew up listening to bands like the aquabats and the mighty bostons and real big fish but i also had my mexican homies who were showing me about bands in mexico in my neighborhood so we grew up with both worlds and um our shows our bands, our local bands are kind of a product of those two worlds. And then, you know, and then obviously a lot of the fans become bands. And then here in, in, in the L.A. area, we have bands that are already considered to be veterans like Viernes 13, uh, Chencha Berrinches, La Resistencia, um, you know, South Central Skankers. Um, these are all Matamosca. These are all bands that started in the late 90s, early 2000s and and have been playing since. And they're 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 just it just it just continued at a very DIY like level and gained so much popularity like in like in the streets and at an underground level that the the support is still there i mean right before covid we had a show that was going to have maybe 2000 kids in a venue but it got shut down 3 days before because of covid and i mean we were we we had the scatterlights flying in and 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 Greg Lee from Hepcat with his projects and I mean it was gonna it was gonna be a dope show and I mean it's it's been strong ever since and um it's it, I think the the fans and such packed venues is the reason why you know we've still stuck around because most people grow out of it you know I would have thought that I would have been doing something else by now but fuck like the the mad the the big crowds are still there and and you know and if anything it's expanded to other major cities like Chicago and and Houston and any any city you have a Latin market or New York where you have Latin people like there's fans who are willing to get promoters to fly us out there to play. For you as a kid, what what were what got you into ska first? In the mid '90s, when I was in middle school, um, I got into Voodoo, I got into Hepcat, got into the Specials, into Madness. Um, I got into Maldita Vecindad, which was from Mexico. I got into Café Tacuba, and the reason why Ska called called my attention, oh, Real Big Fish is another one, Aquabats, and of course, you know, Link 80. And Link 80 was more on the punk end, right? Yeah, definitely. So so the reason why it called my attention was because I was, I was a band geek. I mean, I played a bunch of different instruments, but I liked punk rock at the same time. And when I heard, when I first started hearing about ska music, it was like, oh shit, this is like what I do at school, but with punk rock, you know? And that's kind of how I got sucked into it. And then I started learning more and discovering more. And eventually I started uh, with a band of my own. And um, and with friends, I mean, friends who I used to skate with, we just became friends on the street and started a band. And it's it's been going since, but... Um, that's kind of how I got introduced to it. And, and at the root of it was a compilation that Vans was giving away. Every time you bought a pair of Vans shoes, they were giving away like that first Punkorama CD, like that very first compilation. And in that compilation was a few ska bands in it. 
And that's what kind of got me a little bit more interested into it. And then it kind of went from there. Tell people what your band is called. I play drums for La Resistencia and I produce and record the band as well. It's a band that I um, I grew up with the guys. The band started uh, a little less than a year before I actually joined. But prior to that, I was doing sound for the band and I was going to all the shows. And and then eventually I joined the band as the drummer. And, and as I got into recording engineering and production, then I started recording the band myself as well. We had a big, a bunch of big shows prior to COVID. Mm-hmm. You know, we had good momentum. We played um, a show at the Palladium with a band called Molotov from Mexico City. That was a really big show. We played at the Wiltern Theater. I think that show, yeah, that show was sold out. It was us and Panteon Rococo. And then before the, prior to that, we played at the Fox Theater in Pomona with Malita Vecindad. That was great. And then we played another show in San Diego at another big theater. Um, and I mean, we, we've, we we've kept it going you know and the band's been through a lot i mean most of the uh, band members are original to the band and we've found ways to keep everyone together cuz i'm i'm i love music so much and something about me is i don't like bands that completely change drastically and i don't think our fans would like that either so we even though people have gotten busy with their lives some people have kids now other people are really into their careers and professions if you know we somehow make it work but we're still together. And even our vocalist, our vocalist had immigration issues and had to leave the country. He's stuck in another country right now. And um, to finish our last record, I flew out to Mexico, built a studio in Mexico City and um, flew him into Mexico City and we recorded there. And then we finished the rest of the album in, in the northern part of Mexico where I built another recording studio at a friend's house. And then we put out the album here in the States when we perform. When we perform, we get friends to perform with us. Other vocalists of other bands will jump on stage and be like guest guest vocalists. But the last big show we did at MacArthur Park with him, we actually programmed him on the on like a massive LED wall, like a I mean a video wall. So so <laughs> wow. I played to I'm the drummer, so I played to a click, and I recorded him video and audio in Mexico. I did not edit anything. I did not auto tune anything. I left them horrible the way he sings live. I mean, not that it's horrible, but just, you know, it's not, it's never perfect. No, no vocalist is perfect live. And I left them as he would perform live. And then we edit, did some video editing, some cool like um, visuals. And then we put them on a massive video wall in front of like 4,000 kids at MacArthur Park for a free show we did with the city of LA with Levitt Pavilion. Um, how did you get involved with promoting shows? I mean, it was kind of out of necessity originally, right? Yeah, so I mean, so when we were young, when we were like uh, 2001, we were still in high school. And when we were seniors in high school, we were already packing venues. Like we were already bringing in 500 kids per show in LA. And I knew that the band had a following. And uh, we would play for some promoters that would rip us off and they wouldn't come through with our guarantees or. It was like between 2001 and 2003. Or I would contact venues like the Whiskey and the House of Blues and uh, I think the Chain Reaction. And I would be like, hey, we want to play our venue. And all of them would either say, you got to sell tickets. Uh, we don't know who you are. Uh, we don't do Spanish rock here, which I wanted to like. I wanted to kick people in the face every time they said that to me because I didn't consider ourselves Spanish rock. But they saw us being bilingual and they just assumed we were Spanish rock. Or every time Real Big Fish or bands like that would come through, I would try like sending out press kits and contacting venues like, yo, 
we bring 10 times more people than these opening bands. Why can't we play? So it got to the point where I just gave up. I said, fuck everyone. We're doing our own shows. And it, it just continued since. And then 10 years after that, House of Blues came running back, was like, yo, like the staff then, not now, was like, yo, do shows with us. And I kind of told them to fuck off. And then we just kept doing our own thing. And, um, and now everything's changed. You know, everyone's like grown. Um, we've established, we've met the right people. We've established new bridges and, and, and now, um, we, we work with bigger venues now, but for like many, many years, I just really was anti that because I know that the people that were working there at the time were the same people that closed their doors on us when we were kids. But that was a, a good reason for us to grow on our own and, and just, you know, become our own monster and not, and not need anyone and convert a lot of um, very DIY venues or, or like halls or outdoor spaces or nonprofit art centers into music venues. Like I would approach, if I saw that there was an, a, an art center that had a stage and a big ballroom and nothing was happening there, I would approach them and be like, yo, we can raise money for you and get our bands paid at the same time, you know, and we have a sound system already. We have our staff already. And it was just very, it started at the root of it. I, I always stuck to nonprofits. I, I worked with a bunch of different nonprofits, a few schools, because those were the ones that had the spaces for live music and they had the permits to do live entertainment. And at the same time, we were raising money for a good cause. The only down, the, the part that sucked there was that there was no alcohol. So, but at that time we didn't care because we were still like in our late teens, early twenties, we couldn't drink anyway. So for like a good minute, we didn't care if there wasn't any alcohol. Every people either drank at home and then showed up to the show or, you know, it was still a great show. We still had minimum 500 people there. But then as we got older, our crowd got older and then it became an issue like, yo, we want a drink, you know? And then that's when I started reaching out to venues and, and pretty much taking it on as an independent promoter. Venues like the Roxy would tell me, okay, well, we see what you're doing, but we don't want to take this risk so how about we just rent you the venue and that was my way into a lot of the hollywood venues i would just have to go in there and rent it just flat out and a lot of times they would give me like really high rentals to the point where they thought i was gonna walk away from it but i wouldn't i'd be like fuck it i know they're overcharging me by a couple of grand but i'm gonna do it just to fucking show them what i can do and then what would happen was that they would see how well well their bar numbers would do and then they would pretty much give me the the, the, the venue for free like next time around <laughs> and then they'd start giving me dates and then they start throwing dates at me like yo come back come back and it got to the point where all these <laughs> venues were fighting for me and i was just like you know like i was just taking whatever was best for everyone and what was best for the bands i mean just to be clear like there was still a lot of other like expenses involved that made it hard for us to stay in hollywood mm -hmm. you know because it's just how do you say like they, they like they made it easy for us to go back, but at the same time, there was just a lot of other expenses involved that still made it hard for us to keep tickets affordable to the public. So we would somehow always have to end up back into like independent venues or like East LA or whatever. In Defense of Ska will return in a moment. Hey everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. 
Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. I, I know like the last decade I've heard about, like it kind of became cool to have like these bilingual bands like um, Las Cafeterias and uh, yeah. Chicano Batman and stuff. But I'm curious how that relates to your scene. Cause I never hear about this, the ska bands out of LA outside of within the ska community and my own, you know, my own experience. Like I hear about these other kinds of bands coming out of LA that are mixing the cultures and the languages, but like nothing, nothing about the ska in, in like these, these mainstream presses and stuff that are all into it now. So I, I like it. it it's, it's kind of interesting because a lot of the kids that come to our shows are also fans of those bands. They're fans of bands like Las Cafeteras, La Santa Cecilia, you know? Um, yeah. You know, those type of bands, but the, those bands have been, you know, have had the opportunity to jump on festivals like Coachella and have been picked up by like these really good like agencies and record labels. The, the, the ska bands in the States that are Latin don't really don't really get picked up like that. If anything, they stay independent and they make their way south and they do better in Mexico City just staying independent. So if, if there's been any like bigger success for 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 like bands that kind of come out of L.A., it's kind of going toward Mexico City and playing the massive shows down there. And they like send in good offers. I mean, they put us on massive stages in front of like between 15, 20,000 people, you know, and I, I feel like we would never get that here. And I've tried I've tried reaching out, but there's just not an interest for it here. Every Like music and music in the States is so. I don't want to say it's it, it like they just they they just have their genres that they they stick to you know, and um, yeah, and it's just it's just like that. It's just I mean maybe someday it changes, but it, it's just it just hasn't popped off like that where it becomes like a mainstream thing here. And at the same time, the ska scene outside of your scene hasn't really reached out to you much, right? I mean I, I think about the Back to the Beach festival a couple of years ago, right? I mean. None of the bands from your scene played that, right? Yeah, Viernes Trece is a band that um, grew up, has grown up with us. I mean, we all grew up. We even went to the same high school, and uh, they. I believe they opened up that festival. Oh, did they? Okay, that's probably at, at most. Yeah, but I mean, I think that still falls back to, to the fact that I mean, I, Bucket Bucket said something. I read it somewhere. I think it was your article where he said that our scene is always in the shadows. Mm-hmm. yeah and i feel like that's that's so true like if if you don't look you're not going to find it and the very few people that do find it they come to the shows and they come back i mean like uh, um, angelo moore from fishbone he knows all about our scene like he's been to a bunch of our shows and he's there and it's cool to see him there because he's one of those bands that i mean i grew up listening to or even like monique from say ferris i've seen her at a show or two and she knows what's up, you know, and, and I, I'd like to see more of those musicians come through because I think if more of those like veteran bands or American bands see what's going on over here, they'll start inviting the bands that we have in L.A., like in the Latin scene to to do more with them. But I think ultimately, too, it's also it's not always up to the bands. There's always like promoters involved and, and just, you know, management companies involved. And 
and what other artists they have that are up and coming, you know, that they want to push. It's just, it's just, there's just so many hands in the, in the mix, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's just, I don't know. It's, it's not, it's not always the easiest, but at the end of the day, it's like, we, we do well on our own. So fuck it. You know, we don't need nobody. <laughs> it's all, it's odd to me though, because the difference between the bands in your scene and the bands outside of your scene that are doing ska, not not a big difference in terms of the sound of the music. Like, it seems very natural fit to mix these bands up. I, I think. I mean, I think what he said about um, people from the from the other from the other side have to come down and see the the bands play in L.A. to understand. Like, you have to see it in person, or you're not going to understand. Like, my, my band came down and played a show at Los Globos, and I had no idea that the East LA scene was so rad. Who did you play with down in, uh, in uh, down there? Matamosca, um, Cafe Con Tequila, uh, Los Ste- the Steadians. Uh, it was a bunch. It was like seven bands. I can't remember all of them off the top of my head. You know, um, in, in, uh, like uh, about uh, back to the beach. I, another thing too that I well, I mean that festival in particular. I think that they didn't. They didn't, um, they were focused on really the 90s, you know, and the bands that they grew up with. So, I mean, I, I wasn't really bothered by them not inviting um, any of the the newer bands because I knew that they were on a mission to kind of bring back what, what the, the, the amazing scene that was happening in the 90s, you know? Yeah, yeah. When it bugs me more, it's when I see these um, active, you know, festivals or these major festivals who just don't look our way because we the bands are not represented, which I mean, it's just the nature of the business. So I, I think they're two different scenarios. The the history of this scene starts in Backyard Parties and the Allen Theater, right? These are the kind of the main early spots for this scene. Yeah, the Allen Theater and our house on my end where I was where I got really busy. Before them, I was doing house parties and we do like warehouse shows here and there wherever we could. But it started getting more um, stable at the R House, which was like an old, I want to say before we we did shows there, it used to be an old convenience store, like like grocery store or something or liquor store. And then it was closed down. And um, that's what it was. But it was a commercial space. And then that got shut down after a year. And then that, the whole team there and the owners there moved over to the Allen Theater where I continued, you know, doing stuff with bands and, and everything else. So what what was the time period of the Allen Theater? And, and also the Allen Theater was just like an old theater, right? Yeah, it was an old movie theater. I used to watch movies there when I was a kid. It was like, we knew that that was like a, a really like, like you can go watch a movie for cheap. The movies weren't always like the latest releases, but I mean, it was just a theater in the neighborhood um it it was like in the area where i went to like elementary and middle school and high school and i lived nearby it we knew there was rats running around we knew it was disgusting you know the the floor was sticky but we would still (laughs) go there i saw a bunch of movies there it closed down for who knows what i don't know and then years later um was when uh, the owners at our house went and leased it out and then uh, we moved our whole operation over to the Allen. Mm-hmm. By then we had we had like momentum with our house. I mean we we were having shows there where there were so many people where we couldn't even keep them inside and so I mean we had a scene for it. We had the bands that supported it and the, the owners at the time were 
you know, they thought like, well, let's keep doing this. You know, it, it makes sense and there's a support for it. But it was it had its own challenges. The city of Southgate wouldn't ever um, grant a liquor license. They always gave the city has its own police department. They had they always gave the the punk rockers a hard time, um, and it it had a hard time surviving just on, I mean just on on the door deals. Like there was no alcohol sales, and that's usually how venues make their money. So. I mean, it it was really hard to get good headliners, um, good production in there. It was hard to get, you know, good lighting or it was just very, very kind of um, it was challenging. And it, it lasted a few good years. It lasted, I want to say, like a solid four or five years. But um, eventually it, it, it didn't last. And this was the early 2000s, right? Yeah, this was, I want to say, like 2000, um, late 2002 through 2006, seven. Something like that. So before the Allen Theater, the shows were in scattered places, uh, backyard parties, and the Allen Theater was kind of a moment where it kind of had a more focused place where it could kind of grow from, would you say? Yeah, but, you know, we had the house parties at the same time, but um, the Allen Theater allowed us to play in a space where we weren't worried about getting raided by the police or having our equipment taken by the cops or people getting shot because i mean growing up going to these backyard shows in south central and compton and linwood and watts i mean i remember a few times where people got stabbed people got robbed robbed at gunpoint or fights you know i've seen people get stomped teeth broken you know like it sucks i mean shitty sound systems you show up there's no pa system or you know, you're, you're, they're asking you to play on dirt, you know, and when you're a kid, when you're like 18, 19, 20, and you really want to play in the band, like next thing you know, you're setting up your drum kit on dirt, you know, the drum kit you work so hard for. And, and, and like the Allen Theater really relieved us from all that shit. And um, and and it was really like, you know, it was it was a blessing to have. So was it it was a theater like there was still theater seats and everything in it? Did um, how did that work? Did people dance and stuff in the halls or what yes what they did was that they probably removed like removed like the first 10 15 rows from the front where the where the seat where the floor was flat Mm -hmm. so that became the pit area the standing area and then where where the the cement started going up like the old movie theaters do the seats were still there so people could sit down and watch or they could go down towards the front and dance Capacity overall, I want to say, was like 500, 550. So sometimes there was a few times where we had bands that could pack two nights in a row. So we would do two nights in a row and do like a thousand tickets between two days. Yeah. What was a, what was like a, one of your biggest or a couple of the biggest shows you did at the Allen Theater? Um, a lot of the bigger shows we had were with the local bands that no one even heard about. Like, you know what I mean? Like the, the big <laughs> venues weren't taking them because they didn't know these bands existed, but we did. So we... um. I want to say like the bigger shows were with bands like Viernes de San La Resistencia and Chencha, the bands that were already doing well at that time. Um, and then when Voodoo would come around every time, it did well. Um, when Sectaco would come around, it did well. When Salon Victoria came around. And then there was a lot of punk shows. I wasn't really involved in the punk rock shows. That was more on the owners and he was the one handling all that booking. But he would bring, bring bands like uh, off the top of my head. I remember, you know, like... Um, like cheap sex or like um leftover i think uh leftover crack played there um 
uh, a global threat, you know, I think, um, you know, there, there was the, the casualties, I think, bands from that scene, you know, they did well there too. And, 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 um, and then there was also the hardcore and the metal shows. The Secta core, um, I got to see them play in Mexico. I thought they were like one of the coolest bands I'd see play just, um, their music and their whole stage show. They had like, um, like video playing behind them with like just disturbing images and stuff like that. Um, you, the show you did with them yeah, at the Allen theater, was that, I think, is that was the first time they came to the U S um, yeah, the first, the first time they came, actually the first time they came into the U S they played at JC Fandango in Anaheim. Um, I, I was actually their driver. I, I, I helped with their, their transportation and I was like a roadie. I was a big fan of theirs in high school before I even met them. Like I, I had their symbol tattooed on me and everything. And, um, when I found out they were coming, I hit up the owner and I'm like, yo, put me to work. I don't care what I do. Just, I want to work with these guys. And I, I was there for that. And then the next time around that they came back, um, I ended up playing guitar for them. They invited me to play guitar with them. Oh, nice. And then I started playing guitar. Yeah. Then I played guitar with, I was with them for like, I played with them for like 10 years in the States. And I, I play, I was like on second guitar. And, um, after, after their first visit was when I got them to come back, I set something up so they can play at the Allen. So the, the Sectacor would come and the LA shows would be at the Allen theater and the orange County shows would be at JC Fandango in Anaheim. What was it like, uh, hanging out with those guys the first, you know, first time or two that you, uh, that they came over? Well, it was awesome. I had a bunch of mutual friends. I had another friend I grew up with. He was much older than me, but he was a, he's a tattoo artist and he tattooed them when they were young in Mexico city. So that's how I discovered them. I was probably like 16 and I was hanging out at the tattoo shop and he was listening to this band that I was like, Whoa, who the fuck are they? You know? And he told me, Oh, I know these guys. I tattooed them when they were young in Mexico city. <laughs> and, and I, and ever since I got into them. So when I found out they were coming, I, 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 I contacted the owner and I said, Hey, I need to work with this band. Make me do something. And then I contacted my friend, the tattoo artist. And I was like, Hey dude, these guys are coming. Please like link me up somehow. I want to meet them. I just wanted to meet them. I, I didn't care anything else, you know? Yeah. And I knew, I knew they weren't going to know nobody here. They were probably, probably going to need someone to help them out. They were going to need someone to maybe take them some weed or something. Like I wanted to be that kid. And, um, and that's how that's how I linked up with them. And and the first time we met, they were awesome. I mean, like I said, I had these different mutual connections. And and from day one, you know, I was there, and um, I was willing to help with whatever. You know, I didn't. I was just. I just wanted to be around them. You know, they were a big influence to me. And um, and you know, they were produced by John Avila from Oingo Boingo. Yeah. And he was another hero of mine. You know, I just it just felt like I had to be there. And. Eventually, like I said, I started playing with them. They saw that I, I wasn't even a guitar player, but I learned to play their songs on the guitar, you know, and and, and it's it, it almost <laughs> felt like I just learned to play guitar just to play for them. And um, eventually they saw that I could play and they invited me to come along. And for a few good years, I wasn't even old enough to go into these venues because when you're touring across the country, a lot of these venues were 21 and over. So they would make their way up in North California or down to like, texas and i would have to wait in the van 
for the band to perform and then I would jump on stage and play with them and then I'd get kicked out because I wasn't 21. So I, I did that for a while and then eventually, you know, I started playing with them. The singer, it's funny that you mentioned the tattoo thing because the singer, Jorge, or one of the singers, he has the best tattoos on his uh, chest and back. He's got on his back, it's just like a gigantic satanic emblem or something <laughs> like that. And uh, on, on the front, on his stomach, there's a bunch of tattoos on his stomach, but right on his like belly area, I, I think it says Skakor o Muerte. Muerte. Yeah. <laughs> which is the best that's the best tattoo <laughs> yeah he's he's the sweetest guy man like it was as it was at it was at his home where i built the studio when we needed a space to record our vocalist when he got deported oh yeah so he really helped us out with that so what what led to the festivals i think the festivals is an interesting turning point i mean you guys are doing really big standalone club shows and you know and and diy shows and backyard barbecue type shows but the festivals is where this thing kind of really becomes its own beast, right? Yeah. So what happened there was um, I always enjoyed when we did so many venue shows, I really missed our roots. Our roots was playing outdoors, playing, you know, out in the open behind warehouses or whatever. That was that's like where we came from. And I would see these outdoor festivals that would never invite us <laughs> or return emails. So I was just thinking like, fuck it, let's just do it ourselves, you know? And um, at Self Hope's Graphics, they had a stage already outside. Um, I went to a hip hop show there and I saw the, the setup that they had and I said, hey, this will totally work for us. And when I, I contacted them, they immediately responded. They were totally cool. We met up. I met with like the the president of the the board there of the, 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 the of the committee um, I showed them what we were doing and they completely opened their doors and they said, hey, you raise whatever money you can and we're down with it and you take what you need. And that's kind of how I started with them. And, and uh, Self-Help's Graphics was um, a big reason how we made the festivals bigger. And what happened when we started doing these outdoor festivals, not only were we already bringing in 2,000 kids outdoor, but they but more people were coming now because they saw that there was some type of momentum. They didn't know who was playing, but they saw everybody going over there, so they wanted to go over there too. And this was a time where MySpace was it was kind of launching was a thing, you know. There was no Facebook, there was no Instagram. An another, you know what? Another thing that let me just go a few years back. Something very important that happened was that 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 helped our scene was that in the early two thousands was that there was no social media. People would find out about these shows either on the street with a flyer at school with a flyer or over a phone call, like, like over these phone mess, like these, these uh, party lines where people would call in and over the phone. So the thing is, is that what made people want to go to the shows was because this is where they would interact with other kids like them. This is where they would come together with other kids that dress like them and look like them. And, and also were bilingual or, or were from the hood and were punk rock because I mean, me growing up in the hood, I was I was very punk rock when I was a kid, but I was surrounded by nothing but gangbangers. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. to come around and see other kids that were punk from the hood too, like I really wanted to be around those type of kids. And all of a sudden, all these kids from all these hoods, from all the way from San Fernando to Orange County, would come together. And we didn't have social media, so like that that really helped keep our scene strong and alive. The fact that this is where they would come and this is where people would interact with each other. 
now you have social media and people are watching each other's bullshit all day. So, no, I mean, I don't think it would have worked today. But <laughs> back in the back in the day, this was like very much like a very it, it was a subculture. And it was it was where everyone would meet up. And the reason the fact that there was no social media was more of a reason for people to come down and be around other people like them. Yeah. Now I don't want to fucking see anyone. <laughs> <laughs> one of the, one of the things that struck me about the show, the festival I went to too, was that it the the style was a total mismatch. Everyone had like some people had these sort of punk looks. Some of them, some people looked ska. Some people looked goth. Some people looked metal. A lot of people sort of even mis mi- mixed these sort of styles together to create their own thing, and. uh it seemed like it was this like almost like this blanket thing that was happening under the banner of ska punk. Oh yeah, and 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 it's it's totally acceptable. You got to understand these kids make their own a lot of these kids make their own clothes. They make their own backpacks, their own jackets. They're not going to Merrill's to buy a fucking jacket that's already uh per, like already has spikes and pyramids for 300 bucks. You know what I mean? These are all broke kids who make their own shit. And when it's that DIY, when it's that raw, it's like anything goes. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you're friends with everyone. And, 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 and I mean, I really think that kids in the hood that are like that are very open-minded because you grow up with other kids who don't even speak English and they're straight up like, they, they, they're, you could straight up tell they're straight out of Mexico. And, 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 but you're okay, but that's who they are. I mean, and then you also grow up with other kids who don't even speak Spanish who grew up here. And then you grew up, like I said, with the gangbangers. And then you grow up with like, with, there's like a lot, you know, there's always, there's a lot of black kids and a lot of Asian kids. And I mean, it's just a mixture of everything. And, and, and I feel that just anything goes and anything's accepted versus, versus when I used to go to these hardcore shows in, in, in Orange County, cause I was also into like, you know, punk rock and hardcore as a kid, I would go to the shows at the chain reaction or, or deep in Orange County and all these kids would look the same, but they were all shopping at the same fucking places. You know what I mean? Like, Mm-hmm. I feel like like they I feel like there was like a need for them to want to be like each other so they could be cool. And that that was that was completely weird for me because I'm thinking I come from a place where everyone is just themselves, you know, and I don't know. It was just like kids in the hood couldn't afford to go to Hot Topic, put it that way. You know, you just you just did what you wanted to do. Yeah. And there's the difference, too, between a trend and a thing that people are into. And I think when you have kids that are, you know, all shopping in the same place and they're into this one thing for a few years, that's definitely a trend. Whereas like your scene is a thing that is multi multi-decade long. And so it's not a trend. It's just, it's a thing people are into. And maybe people go in and out of being interested in it, but. And you, you know what, you know, what's beautiful now is that at, at first I, I used to have this mentality and I used to think that, there's people that I'm never going to see again. There's people in our scene that are just eventually going to get over it and not come back because we have all these new generations that come around of fans. You know, a lot of these fans just, they, they, it gets to a point where I don't know anyone in the crowd anymore. But when I was a kid, I knew everyone and it gets to a point where there's just so many new people come around and I don't know anybody no more, but that's just the way it goes. But now what's happening or what's been happening over the, the last few years is that a lot of those people who are going to our shows in the early 2000s are now coming back with their own kids. Mm. I run into them or they'll come up to me and be like, hey, do you remember me? And I'm just like, no, I don't. But holy shit, like I kind of do, but I don't. But then I realize, oh, shit, you used to go to shows back in the days, you know, and 
and and and it just it just trips me out how that how that works and and that kind of makes me feel like holy holy shit like this is gonna this type of thing is gonna keep this alive now the fact that these people are bringing their kids and then their kids are wearing these t-shirts you know what i mean like it, it it's a trip like i trip out no it's neat and and i think that's you know the the longevity of it is was what's similar too about mexico and even though mexico is much bigger thing it's also not a a trend the way it was here in, in like the, the States. Yeah. It's just a genre and people are into it and go in and out of it, but the genre stays intact and these bands continue to play and put out albums. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. We'll be right back after this. Hey everybody. It's Barry from the what podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024 these are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Um, can you just tell us about what, what was the first show that you booked and how did it go? Um. So the first show that I booked, I want to say, was at a house party. And um, from what I remember, I think the people who lived at the house needed money to pay their rent. And we just wanted a place to perform at. This was with one of my old punk bands before the ska bands. And I had a PA system. And um, I, I actually had like just shitty backline, but we had the backline. And I, I, it happened a few times where I would tell the homeowner, you can keep the money. You can even fucking sell whatever you want. You can sell tacos in the backyard. But just let us play. We can bring people. And that's kind of how it started for us. Or that's how I, that, that was the approach I took. I would just let the homeowner take the money, you know, because we didn't care for the money. I mean, we were still in, like, we were like sophomores and juniors in high school. We just wanted to party somewhere. We wanted somewhere to go. And then it's funny because then it, it became a thing where the homeowners would see what we we're doing and would like cash in on it. And then they would try to do it again, or they wanted to do it again or what kept, <laughs> you know what I mean? Or they tried to do it on their own. But I mean, eventually it would, you, you can only do parties at a house so much before the city cracks down. So that was, that's my earliest thoughts of booking shows. But when it became more of a legit thing was when, um, I mean, I booked like a, sh like two shows at school. Like literally they had like these art shows and we would find a way to sneak in bands into like being part of the art show. And I would bring bands to play at the, the shows at Lingwood High. Um, but then an actual like venue or like spot that was in school or backyard was at the old R house. That's where I was. Um, we were, we had a bunch of restrictions. The first show we had there, like we had to be done by eight and no adults were allowed like the owner straight up said, like, this is going to be like a teen after school thing or some bullshit. I don't know what he probably was scared that, you know, that alcohol or drugs were going to get in. I don't know. But that was the approach they took. The approach they took was that they wanted to make it some type of like um, after school teen center. But it didn't really go that way. Once they saw that there was a lot of people showing up that wanted to get in that weren't that were older, were 18 and older and wanted to pay, you know, like it just somehow it just kept it kept transforming but the, the owners at the time they had they didn't have any experience with venues so they were also discovering on their own you know and 
and and I was all I was doing was bring like you know bringing the bands I knew and and providing the PA system because there was no PA system there. I had to bring it every time, and those are my earlier memories of 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 when I started booking shows. I was I was definitely in high school. I would actually make my flyers in my math one of my, my geometry class. I would use um not Photoshop but some cheap program, and I would make flyers in class, and then I would make. I would make the copies at the school library. It was like maybe 20 cents a copy or 10 cents a copy. And it's funny because that teacher, I did, that teacher was like some type of distributor or something for Cholula hot sauce or had had something to do with Cholula. So he would ask me like, hey, can you design like, like these things, these, these ads or whatever for my, for my business? And I would do it. But at the same time, I would make the flyers. I never did any homework, and he still passed me. <laughs> <laughs> Your first festival was Scott Core Invasion. Is that correct? Yeah, the first festival was maybe 2006, Scott Core Invasion. So you did you did that again. Um, eventually, you added Scott Wars as well, right? So these were two different festivals happening at different times of the year, but every year for the most part. Yeah. Um, one was more in the winter and Scott Core Invasion was in the summer. Scott Core Invasion was more very, very like Scott Punk, very like it had it had hardcore bands in the mix. When Scott Wars came around, we just needed to do something. We wanted to do something in the winter. And I had already used the Scott Wars uh, name at the Knitting Factory where it had a lot of success. So I thought, why not do it here? And we kind of tried to lean more toward bringing in the very few traditional, you know, more calming uh more calm sounding bands that were around which wasn't many at the time but it was just another another theme you know it was just something else to do um but they were very similar i mean it was the same crowd but over the years scholars just became actually a lot bigger just because we kept booking bands that were more not on the hardcore side. And obviously I think that's where more people, more of the scene was at. It seemed to me at Scott Wars that it was really, really diverse. Like I wouldn't pin any one sound on that festival that I was at. It seemed like it was a little bit of everything in terms of having ska being an element. And and not just that, but also you got to think that in the winter, there are no festivals, there are no shows. It, we would always do it at the first week of February. So no one's ever doing concerts or shows hardly anyone's touring in january or february so we would give people somewhere to go we would run the risk of of getting rain we got rain a few times it would rain down on us like maybe two or three times but um and it was cold but i mean people came out and i think that's another reason why the scott wars always did better versus scott core invasion in the summertime there was all these festivals and all these events happening in the summer i want to ask you a little bit about your life outside of booking shows um you also work with artists and musicians and stuff behind the scenes, correct? Yeah, I'm a drug supplier. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I've been watching too much Narcos right now. <laughs> so who, um, Travis Barker and um, Deftones, these are some of the main artists you work for? Yeah, so um, I, I'm, I'm like a Swiss army knife uh, to some of these some of these artists like I have a lot of experience in studio production I have a lot of experience with cameras and documenting and filming creating content even like being an assistant being like a, a, a production assistant um, a studio tech you know dealing with backline um, I, I've, I've, I've done a lot of that growing up either 
personally, me as a musician or with the shows, you know, and um, it's led me to to work with 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 some of these acts with the Deftones. I've done a lot of their content. I've been documenting them for many years now. Uh, a lot of the, the the album photos and like the when you open the album, the record, and you see the the, the 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 beautiful photo that opens in the middle. That's my shot, you know, that sort of thing. Um, a lot of the photos from the tours, you know, from like the last South American tour, like those are all my photos. I roll with them. I film. A lot of it isn't even out. We just archive it. Maybe someday it's going to end up on a documentary or something. And then um, and then I help out with whatever else I need, you know. Um, it's, it's very similar with Blink. With Blink, I have a little bit more going on. I, I'm very involved with, like, with whatever's needed. It could be, I mean, um, content. It could be me being a personal assistant running errands. Um, for example, with Travis, I help him, you know, with his studio maintenance at his recording studio. Um, I, I, I work with, you know, with whatever videos, you know, a lot, a lot of the, the content with him as well. Um, whenever any video or audio needs editing, I, I, you know, I'm there. And then I work with another artist named Pepe Aguilar, who's a really big deal in Latin America. He, uh, I work with him and his daughter and his son, and they're all superstars out there. Um, I do, I work mixing for him, studio mixing um, and editing. I've done maybe like five or six album covers for that family. I did um, the book from his MTV Unplugged. When you buy the DVD, it comes with a book, a photo book, and that's all my work. And um, I've played drums in a few of their music videos so I'm like all around you know anything that's under I feel like in today's age like you you gotta just you gotta just be you gotta be able to do many things you know within the music and I feel that that's that's the way that's the only way that it's 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 allowed me to kind of to stay afloat or to stay busy because I mean if I would have just been like dedicated to to touring I wouldn't have had work right now. You know what I mean? Or I would only have work a few months out of the year or, or, or like, I, I'm just, I, I find it hard to just stay doing one thing. And I think that growing up very DIY made me learn how to do a lot of these things on my own. And, um, and now I'm applying them to everything else that I do with these acts. How did it start? Who was the first person that you started working with and how did that connection get made? So uh, the the first major artist that I worked with back in 2012 or that I did any photo work for was Travis Barker. And um, I met him, I met him through my good friend, Chuy Quintana, who's his tattoo artist. Um, I grew up around um, Chuy's circle. Um, we have many mutual friends. Um, one of the first shops he worked at was right here around the corner from my house. I used to ditch school and hang out there. And, you know, I, that's how I became familiar with him many years later. You know, we became friends and I, I assisted him with whatever I could go to tattoo conventions. I just I was just hanging. I was a homie. I wasn't really I, I'm not going to say I was like working for him, but I was putting in work, you know, just just because I, 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 I grew up in the tattoo world and I, I love art and everything that they do. So that's how I met Travis. But prior to that, I would take photos and I would still film, you know, growing up playing in the bands that I played in, we didn't, we couldn't afford to pay anyone to, to take photos of us or create content. So I would just do it myself. And I would do a lot of that with the, in the tattoo, in the tattoo world, 
with these tattoo artists, I would help them, you know, keep their Instagram busy and growing. Um, and, 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 uh, I would go on trips to other, you know, to Europe and everywhere. And I would just film the whole thing. And so that's how I stayed busy. So when I came around and I met people like Pepe and Travis and they saw what I was doing with the tattoo artists, they kind of started inviting me around to like, Hey, you can, you can come around. And, and it just, and, you know, and with Pepe, when he, I met him through, um, I, I mean, I, I, he got to see my work through Instagram and also met me through Chewy. Um, he was kind of like, oh, you do mixing too? Like, oh, you play drums? Like, yo, we need a drummer. Come down, you know? And and that's kind of how kind of just meeting people. But I want to say um, it's a mixture of different things. Yeah. But definitely the first major artist I got to do stuff for was was probably Travis. Yeah. And in high school, I played for, I think I played, I played for Stevie Wonder, but I didn't even know who he was at the time. Wait, what? You played, tell me more about that story. <laughs> so, 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 when I, so when I was in high school, like 2001, 2002, um, I, I jammed out with, I played with the gospel choir and there were some jam sessions and Stevie Wonder was going around different high schools. You know, I think he was like at Compton and Linwood. And, um, we did a show. We even performed with him, I think, in Philadelphia. Or we flew out to Boston, Philadelphia. And um, I was I joined the gospel choir just because I wanted to play drums. I didn't like gospel music, but I didn't know what other class to get. And I knew there was a drum kit in that fucking room, and I wanted to be in there. So I took the <laughs> class not knowing I was going to be the only Mexican kid, which is totally fine. You know what I mean? <laughs> but, but I was the only Mexican kid in there, and it was fun. And and I made a lot of friends in there, and we, you know, we jam out. But um, there was this thing where he was using the gospel kid gospel choirs to record on one of his records, and he came around and jammed out, and and we all jammed out together. And I didn't know who he was. I remember they announced on the on the on the on, on the speakerphone one morning to the whole high school, like, "Congrats to the following students are gonna be working with so and so," you know. And I remember someone coming up to me like, dude, they said your name. You're going to go do stuff with Stevie Wonder. And I'm like, what the fuck is Stevie Wonder? You know? And it, <laughs> and it wasn't until like a year later, I started realizing that he was a pretty big deal. And now I see him walking around Nam. I don't think he's blind. He's faking it. <laughs> I feel like that's going around a lot lately. I saw, I saw somebody else saying something about Stevie Wonder not being blind. Yeah, he cut me off yeah. on the freeway. Fuck that guy. No, I'm <laughs> <laughs> one, one of the things that you did uh, I'd like to hear more about it, it's a one-off if I understand it is that you worked with Post Malone um, for the Nirvana stream that he did that was a that was a fundraiser yeah, yeah that, tell me about that what, what did you do and so the fo- the photo I took uh, was the main cover and was the photo that went viral of him in the dress um, I, I took that photo. Oh, yeah? yeah, it was a fun week. We spent that week there. Um, I was there with Travis. I was handling everything for Travis and his, you know, his production and his gear and whatever he needed. And um, he's the one that brought me on board. And we did. Then we worked together with Post and his crew, put together, um, you know, the, the the instruments, the audio production, the video production to be able to do the streaming that raised a ton of money for the WHO. But yeah, it was a very small crew. It wasn't many of us because this was in the middle of like, I want to say this was like April, May. This was like in the middle of lockdown. Like no one was going anywhere. Everyone was like scared to death, you know, of COVID. Like we, we were, you know, it was just, we kept it very tight. We didn't, there wasn't many people there. You know, we 
it was just a very safe uh, environment and the few people that were there we everyone killed it and you know it, it went very well i was blown away by how good that was oh yeah and you know what's crazy is like they were so good they only rehearsed like one night the night before i was there for rehearsal too and from the top like they had it down like all of them were beasts you know um all of them just had it down um brian leon bass um I'm a big fan of his work. He's a producer. He's produced from Lady Gaga to Jaden Smith. He works with Post Malone. He, he's written music for a lot. He's, he writes hits. And he comes from the punk rock and, and like a lot of the Scott punk um, in the 90s. And, and now he's writing hits for these major artists. He, he used to be in a band called uh, Mest. And, um, and he was part of that too. And, and, and then Post is just amazing at guitar. He's just, um, he has a, a, a voice that just fits with anything. And, and he, the way he put out Kurt's music, it just, I mean, it, it's amazing. And, and then, you know, Travis always kills it. He's just, he's just a machine on the drum. So, I mean, it, it was going to be, I knew it was going to be good from the start. Yeah. I tuned, I tuned into that, not knowing what to think. And from like the first five seconds, I was just, I was so blown away by how good it was. I was just laughing like with joy at how great they all sounded. It was yeah. so fun. Yeah. I'm a big Nirvana fan. Nirvana was a really, really big uh, influence. And, and I, I still, I still listen to Nirvana and um, that was really cool. Post Malone. I think I had a similar experience because Post Malone wasn't really on my radar before that. I didn't really hate him or like him. I just really, I don't know. I just didn't really pay attention to him. So to find out that he's has this talent as a guitar player and a singer and could do this music so well, it was completely out of left field. Yeah. You know, post, um, I, 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 have known his music, but I didn't know how he was personal, like personally, like in person. And he's a fucking metalhead at heart, dude. And I love that about him. He was jamming out. He was screaming. They were working on music. Um, and and he's a shredder. Like you can tell, he grew up listening to Slayer, Pantera, Black Sabbath. I love that about him. And the fact that you know, it's it's mind blowing to see the music he's making out in the world and where he comes from. His dad is such a sweetheart. His dad is like an old school like metalhead, and and he's like he's like one of those cool guys that you know were fucking cool like as fuck when they were kids listening to like heavy metal. You know, all the rebels and. And I, and that I think and that's where po, I that's where Post Malone got all his fucking musical tastes from. His dad is such a cool dude, man. And um, and yeah, like he's just he 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 listens to everything, man. He was pretty much playing music for us one night till like nine in the morning, and he would go from folk to country to 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 like punk rock to death metal to like orchestra music. Like he's just all over the place, dude. Like. He's he's awesome, man. So does does Post Malone like ska? I don't know, man. You know what? We did not touch into the ska, but I'm sure I'm sure he does. I'm sure he has a fucking pair of chucks or some bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me the context of the photo that you took. So uh, as I was working, you know the the, you know the the backline deal for that um i carry my camera everywhere i go i mean i wasn't i wasn't even sure if i was going to be allowed to take photos because i knew that um there was a lot of uh sometimes there's a lot of restrictions with especially when something's being filmed like 
every time I go to like the Jimmy Kimmel or I work Conan shows or whatever for TV, they never allow your camera in. So I took it just in case, not knowing, like maybe I could film, maybe I can't. And it turned out that I could just shoot away. You know, there wasn't many, it was just like, I got the, I got the okay from post management. And they just said, hey, as long as we approve whatever gets out, like you can shoot away. And I agreed to that. And um, and yeah, I have a ton of fucking awesome photos. But I mean, I think maybe they'll end up in a history book someday. But um, I, I don't think I'm going to be putting them out anytime soon. That's kind of my approach when I take photos. I don't I don't really take photos to make prints or to try to like post them immediately. I take photos more with the intention that they hoping that they end up in a history book someday. How did that photo get end up getting used? Was it did you post it first or did they did Rolling Stone or whoever asked for photos and you had them to 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 give them? Um I sent it out to uh Postman Posts Post Malone's management. They liked it and then uh they approved it and they're the ones who who sent it out to the world. And then once they did it, then I've got the okay to do it on my end, but um I waited I usually wait for the artist to do it. Like I'd rather them pick the photo that they want to use. That way they're happy with it, you know, like whatever their taste, whatever their taste is. Um, I wanted to to ask a little bit about um, working with the Deftones. Yeah. Um, they just released the the 20 year anniversary of White Pony. And I wanted to ask, uh, were, you, were you involved in uh, working on any of that? So, um, so they, yeah, they did the 20, they did the Black Stallion remixes release as well, um, which yeah. is awesome. Um, I did not work on White Pony. Um, that's white pony you know i, I wasn't I, I was i think i was still in school when that came out but um what i did got, get to work on was this last record that just came out last year called ohms okay yeah um i did there's two videos there's two videos for that and i shot the live performance for both of them so what we did was that this was i want to say during june july you know and um the guys wanted to shoot the shoot these two videos for the, the new record. And I was actually there for the recording of the record as well at Jim Henson Studios, this in, I wanna say uh, 2019. So I, I, I was there for, I filmed and took photos of that whole thing and assisted however I could. And then when the album, when it came to releasing the album, they wanted to do music videos. But the thing was just that there was no way of, doing videos at the time because of, of covid and and there was the restrictions were still kind of like there they still weren't in place you know people were still learning about covid and the guys didn't want to risk anything or put anyone in you know anyone's health in danger so we figured out you know what let me film these two songs and but do it individually what i did was that i traveled with the lighting tech and i traveled with uh, my camera assistant and we took the same equipment and the same production stuff to each dude separately um and filmed them at different locations but we made it seem like they were together but it's not like a cheesy green screen type thing like we tried to we didn't want it to to seem like you know those videos where you could tell they just cut and pasted them we, we wanted it to be a little bit more like just like trippy uh, more art like of a live feel the 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 dude that did the lighting his name's john eddie he's actually the lighting tech and designer for deftones on tour so he knows the music well the movement of the, of the lighting goes good with the music he knows what they like um i know you what they like obviously because i i've been filming them for years 
and it just made sense to film it. And then, um, so we did these two songs at different locations for New York City. We couldn't film the bass player. The bass player lives in New York. The other guys live along the West Coast from here all the way up to Oregon, between LA, Sacramento, and Oregon. So I was able to do that with New York City. They filmed the bass player out there and we got the crew who works for the Pixies. And they had everything we needed to make it happen. And um, and what happened there was um, they put me on an iPad and I would just watch them film while I was on the iPad and I helped kind of direct. That way the image they were capturing in New York fit in well with what I had captured over here on the West Coast. And then um, we put it all together uh, and then, and the, this was a collaboration with a, with a director, um, like visual effects dude named um, Rafa Tun on one of the videos. And he got his team working on it with 3D animation and all kinds of cool visual effects and eye candy. And, 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 and it just, it was kind of like a, a group effort, but everyone was still kind of isolated and, and we got some pretty cool videos out of it. That's awesome. Yeah, so that's kind of what I did on on the last record, and then and then also you know the images you get in the book and the vinyl and it came with a photo book, uh, on the deluxe version of the vinyl it comes with a photo book of of nothing but photos from the studio while they were recording, and um, I took a, a handful of those photos as well. That's awesome. Yeah, I saw I was also looking around on on your Instagram and I saw um I saw that you thanked uh, Conrad. Yeah, how do you know Conrad? So Conrad used to be in a Portland, Oregon ska punk band called Little Mission Heroes. Yeah, yeah. He told me about that. So I know Conrad because Conrad used to work at a venue in L.A. where we had shows and he was the booking agent there. Yeah. And we and so when I when I when we needed we needed a venue for Oregon, for Portland. And and we said, well, the, the vocalist of Deftones lives in Portland. Where do we film? You know? And I was contacting venues and I couldn't find a, a studio space. A lot of the filming locations were closed because of COVID. So I thought, what's the next big, best thing to, to find? And I thought, well, a venue, venues are dead. No one's going, doing shows. So let's rent a venue for, for this filming. And I couldn't find one. And then I thought, oh, shit, Conrad lives up there. I called Conrad the same day he found us a, a club. And I was going to need someone to help me with playback, you know, for the filming and any, any assistant work. And we, we hired him to get on board and he was pretty much our, our assistant for the vocalist filming in Portland. And, and yeah, man, that's how I know Conrad. He's a cool dude. In Defense of Ska will return in a moment. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. I just love how small the world is. Yeah, it's crazy, man. And you know what's crazy now thinking about it? I remember him telling me that that he knew you. Um, we, we would talk about this stuff, and he would tell me how he was he played trumpet in a band and, you know, how he grew up with Scott. And yeah, he's, he's a cool dude. Yeah, he we hung out pretty hard when we would, when we would go up that way. He used to um, 
be like a straight edge hardcore kid. I mean, he isn't anymore, but yeah, uh, it was always fun hanging out with that dude. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say if there was anything you wanted to plug, but I don't know. I guess that would be. I don't know if you do have anything to plug at this point. At the, I mean, at this point, like it, it's really hard to plug anything in. There's, we don't know what's coming. <laughs> you know, we had we left the show on hold, and all these ticket sales that we're sitting on. Um, you know, we offered refunds to the public and no one really cared to get a refund. They said, fuck it, we'll sit on our ticket. So we've been rolling over the date and, um, we're just going to keep rolling it till we're able to do a show. But I mean, if if we, we we have like a a show that is, it's kind of like, we have, we have this show that's going to happen. We just don't know when it's going to happen. And we already have a ton of tickets sold for it. So I mean, we're gonna we we keep everyone informed. We keep everyone updated. Um, I I I let people know, and I'm also in touch with the bands, you know, and, and the headliners, and like, hey, we're gonna do this, you know. If anything, you know, <laughs> we're we're gonna finish this, but it's just um, we we feel like we 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 have like we 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 still have this we have this commitment that we're gonna we're going to have and you know what when we do do it it's going to be the biggest show ever because man it's you know it's gonna it's gonna be something special because you know yeah i might come down for that because i was actually i i was considering before covid became a thing i was seriously considering coming to that show it's crazy we got we got shut down three days before the show yeah like three days before the show was when we got word like it was not happening and at that time i didn't realize how serious it was I wasn't really paying attention to TV. I knew there was some virus coming from like Asia, but I didn't. I mean, you always hear about these, like, like you know, these, 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 these illnesses or these flus or, you know, or these, or you know, these things happening around the world, but you you never hear about it actually, like, st- like stopping everything, you know. So I mean these things happen. I mean, it's happened in history, so I guess it's happening again, but, but yeah, I didn't think they were going to shut us down. And once they said, you guys got to shut down, we completely respected it. We said, you know, if this is what's going on, then fuck it. You know, we're going to, we're going to hold back. And I actually wanted to just refund everyone their tickets and just say, you know, we'll just do it from scratch. But a lot of the bands were still like, no, we got to, we're on board. And you know what, not just that, but a lot of the flights were paid for. A lot of the you know international bands that were coming in had their expenses paid for, so we just held on to the credit, canceled the flights, and we just we were determined to make it happen when it does come back. And um, it might not be the exact exact same lineup, but I would be I, ideally it's going to be we're going to prefer to have the same talent and even make it better, you know, make it more of a party. And um, that's kind of how how I feel about it. But uh, and you know. People have fatigue now, and people don't even. A lot of people don't even. Don't don't even care anymore about COVID, which is sad. I see it in our community, and um, but we're not gonna have any events till it's safe to do so. I don't care. I've seen a lot of people throwing house parties. I even see some bands playing shows at venues, or not venues, but like low budget, whatever, you know, or especially like toward Orange County, because Orange County doesn't really care. Um. And I'm I'm kind of stuck in a moment where I'm like, no, I see how people are dying in my neighborhood. 
our our our, our communities, our low income communities, are being affected like the worst because people here don't have health care and don't get help, and then they die. I mean, I, I I've lost family to this. My friends have lost family and parents to this. Like, it's real, and 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 I would never ever forgive myself if I were to throw a show or perform at a show and bring people together and putting them in danger, you know, like I just, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. And, um, and it just sucks because I see a lot of people who don't think like that. Like maybe they did at the beginning, but now they're just over it. And they're just thinking like, Oh, it's not going to happen to me. They're just, or they think, Oh, it's going to happen to anyone, anyone and you can't stop it. So fuck it. Let's party. I'm just like, no, nah, you know what? I'm not going to, I'm not going to be that guy, you know? Cause I think, that's that's just setting yourself up for bad karma for sure and it's just not worth it and it's just and it's just a bad and it's just a bad it's just the wrong thing to do right now as much as i want to be at a live show as much as i want to perform as much as i want to work at a live show i'm not gonna fucking do that and then live the rest of my life knowing that i did something stupid like that you know yeah yeah so punk rock bowling is coming back in september i think uh supernova ska festival also what do you think? Does that seem? Does that seem like it's going to happen, and that that'll be the time? I mean, I, I, who knows? I mean, it's 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 hard to say because we don't know how this vaccine rollout is happening. It would be nice to see shows come back. I really, if it's, I, I really would like to see punk rock bowling be able to pull this off, like in a very safe. You know, who knows? Maybe they have a whole different like format for how they're going to lay out the venue and how they're going to maybe have different sections. I've seen um, how Europe and even Australia were doing like outdoor events and they had like barricade all over the place where they give more distance between the crowds and it's more spread out, more video screens, things like that. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking maybe these promoters are, are looking at how other countries are doing it and getting ideas or even bettering it. I mean, it's not going to be like a, like a, let's just do shows again all of a sudden. I think there's going to have to be uh, safety measures for sure. And I know that Nevada is like, whatever about it. They've, they've, they opened up a long time ago, you know, at their casinos. So I think it's easy for them to do shows in Nevada or, or punk, or punk, they do punk rock bowling. But, um, I, and you know, I think that if you're doing shows in the middle of nowhere where there's not that many people, I think it's going to be, I think that's where it's going to start coming back because it's not going to be easy to just start doing shows in the middle of a city like LA, you know, where, where yeah. it's, it spreads faster. It's harder to be safer. You know, you're more at risk of, of getting, I mean, I was watching uh, MSNBC earlier this week or last week and uh, they were talking about my, my city where I grew up. How about how my city Linwood in LA is the most affected in all of LA. And just because um, there isn't any testing, there there isn't any um, any like resources for the people there. They're very like misinformed, and it was kind of sad to see that. You know what I mean? And it's like that in in many um, like areas of LA. So it's not safe to bring people together in those type of areas. But if it's like in a, in the middle of nowhere, like or where they they they're much you know their their numbers are way down then i think it it's going to have to start somewhere you know but yeah but it's definitely definitely not going to be in la for sure not not anytime soon yeah and and i think you know people are doing socially distant shows and that's going to be a thing and i don't like necessarily have a problem with that but it doesn't really appeal to me either like i want to i want to i want to go to shows when they're back yeah yeah me as a musician when they've invited us to just some live streams 
I didn't want to do it. I was like, no, nah, it's not going to feel right, you know? <laughs> and if it's, and if we were to do a stream, I would be really like, hold on, you know, let's do this right, you know? I'm not, I don't want to just do a, a, a cheap little stream with one camera angle. Like, you know, a lot of bands are doing that, and I guess it's cool if it works for them, but I, I don't feel it. And then also, too, like, yeah, the social distance live events, I don't, that's just, no, that's not it. That's not what I was, that's not what I learned. <laughs> I've been playing music since I was six years old. I did not put in that much work my whole life to fucking do that. Like, I'd rather wait it out, maybe focus more on other skills I can keep developing in, you know, in my, in the studio or, or with the camera work. I'd rather put time into that than to try to put on a mask and fucking sweat balls, you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Scum. If you haven't already, subscribe to my newsletter at aaronkarns.substack.com. You will get episodes of the In Defense of Scum podcast and other content sent directly to your inbox. If you'd like to pre-order my book, In Defense of Ska, go to clashbooks.com. It releases on May 4th, 2021. On that note, we'll leave you by saying, Ska, now more than ever. Thank you. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.